0: This is the Crucible, the JRTC experience.
1: to hey, hey, my position.
0: Room.
2: Over. Oh. Okay.
1: This is where we discuss warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC.
2: Hi, I'm Captain Evan Malcolm, Pathfinder Company Commander for Geronimo here at the Joint Readiness Training Center. And today we have with us the former 11th DTG Commander and current All-American 7, Colonel Andrew Sazlab. Thanks for being here today, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great so sir before we get started can you please just give a brief background where you served what you've done uh, some experience you've had in your career
1: yeah so you know my resume which i have like a 33 uh, percent effectiveness score on says the top five and it says you know i'm a i'm a well-rounded infantry officer that's served in every type of infantry our army has and types that don't exist anymore uh, and so i've served across the army uh, you know i started my career as a light infantryman in the 25th id rifle platoon leader uh, through the experience to be a long-range surveillance detachment commander. Um, you know, as a mechanized guy in Korea at the kind of the start of the global war on terror. Uh, spent the next formidable years in the Ranger Regiment as a company grade and field grade officer. Um, commanded a striker battalion. Um, was the G3 of the 25th Infantry Division, um, which I think is going to have a lot of relevance to some of your questions. And I commanded 1st Brigade of the 8th 2nd Airborne Division the COG, and now I'm the Deputy Commander of
2: Operations of the 82nd. Awesome. Thank you, sir. So, Colonel Hardman always asks me why Geronimo cheats as an opening question. So, in true provocative fashion for all the naysayers, what is the relevance of airborne divisions or paratroopers that you see in a LISCO fight?
1: Yeah. So, so you know, I think one side of the... The Army has always asked this question, right? Um, But the question has become more burning in people's minds since the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And we saw the colossal defeat of their parachute forces in the initial invasion. So why do we think we could do that better and what's the relevance? I think there's two really important points to this um, conversation. One is the type of soldier that is a paratrooper. And, and whoop, that brings to the battlefield. The second is our nation's ability um, to set the conditions to do what it is we choose to do wherever in the world we choose to do it. Um, and so let's start with the first, the paratrooper. You know, General Gavin, uh, the longest serving commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, um, said, you show me a man who'll jump out of an airplane and I'll show you a man who'll fight for his country. Um, today, luckily, that is men and women. And there's just something different and something unique about an individual who will stand in the door under 60 uh, pound rucksack and, and the load of their parachute and step out into the dark night. And it creates a warrior on the battlefield that just makes a difference. Um, but the second is, is more tangible. I mean, you think, why is the Army's operating concept multi-domain operations now? And It's, be, it's because as a, as a military, we realized that we had this problem um, that started with integrated air defense, right? An A2AD structure in most of our threats around the world that was going to cause a problem for us as we penetrated their airspace to deliver combat forces. Um, and it's, it's affected how we do everything, right? It affects how the Navy looks at a problem across the Pacific Ocean as, as we have to close the, the distance across the world's largest ocean. It, it creates a dilemma for the United States Air Force and, and realistically, the world's three largest air forces, right? the US Air Force, the US Marine Corps, and the US Navy, as they try and base aircraft in a survivable manner around the world. And of course, for our army, it comes down to, you know, we're the decisive land component of the United States military. So how do we seize a spot on the land where we can begin to conduct what it is we choose to do as a nation? And that's where airborne forces come into play. There is simply no faster way to deliver large amounts of combat power through an enemy's air defenses in a finite window and mass on the ground. And that is what the 82nd Airborne is designed to do, joint forcible entry. The purpose of that is to establish a lodgment, a place where we can continue to flow in forces to do the will of our nation. Um, and that is what we master. Limited window where we can penetrate an enemy's airspace and seize a piece of terrain to do what it is the United States has set out to do. To build combat power and move forward to meet our nation's objectives
2: and you bring up two really good points sir the the first being the jfes i've been lucky enough to see all three brigades um, from the 82nd come down and do their jfes here uh, at fort johnson and this is my first airborne assignment with geronimo but being able to see the heavy drops and all the packs come in and how quickly the paratroopers can actually assemble on Geronimo DZ and start uh, pushing out to their sub-objectives and actually expand the lodgement. Uh, it's pretty impressive. And I know this rotation was, was also super impressive watching them actually move at that quickly to get to those objectives. And then to your first point, sir, I know a lot of people ask why Geronimo is an airborne battalion. And I think due to our size of how small we are, having to face thousands of people when they come through as RTU these rotational units, I think it takes a special breed of person, and it probably has to be a paratrooper in order to actually make that fight realistic. So I think those 100%, two. One
1: hundred percent. You know, I you know I think one of the things that our early airborne leaders realized in you know 1942 and 1943 was that the paratrooper needed something that the army had discouraged in the history of armies. It needed a sense of individualism. Right, the paratrooper, they're going to arrive at battle unlike any other soldier, and it's alone. When you hit the ground in the dark of night, you're seemingly by yourself, and slowly you start to rise, and you, you, you build a, a buddy team, and then you build a fire team. And quickly, you're massing battalions and brigades against the enemy. But that sense of individualism to know, I have been trained, and I can conquer this, I think that's why Geronimo is an airborne battalion. You know if you go back, the first people to wear name tags in our army are the paratroopers, right and it was to remind them that they were part of this collective, but they're also an individual, and that individual sense is critically important to achieving that decisive um, win in in a very difficult time where you enter the battlefield surrounded and Geronimo was generally always surrounded and certainly against superior numbers, right
2: yeah, a former Former Geronimo 6 used to say when we conducted our JFEs, uh, was you can guarantee two things you're going to hit the ground, and then you're going to land nowhere close to where you thought you were going to land. So being able to understand that min force, make those LGOPs, and move out to the objective, super important for That's any right. paratrooper.
1: You know, I, I, I often joke, and, and I, I normally make the comment with regards to technology, the technological advances in our Army. Um, but in this case, it has to do with who we are in essence, as paratroopers. And, you know, I say if, if you went out to Fort Cavazos and, and you were able to bring George Patton back and, and he watched a, a platoon of M1 Abrams um, at full speed on a multipurpose uh, range, he would be shocked. It would, and It would have been hard for him, I think, to believe that those were tanks, right? An M1 Abrams traveling at 60 miles an hour, launching a shell... You know over two and a half k and hitting a uh, almost a point target it'd be hard for him to grasp the fact that those were tanks right i think if you brought general gavin back and you put him on normandy drops zone fort liberty he'd be like yep those are paratroopers right it would look for a large part very similar to what he saw uh, when he was a division commander absolutely sir
2: so just a little bit of a transition here so when you were the cog you really kind of oversaw or worked with that transition from the date to somewhat of the LISCO fight that we're kind of experiencing now at the Joint Readiness Training Center. What do you think battalions and brigades are having to think about differently now than they used to be preparing for when they came through for a rotation? So, you know, let me take you back to,
1: to, you know, why I came here thinking this is what we have to change. Um, my evolution into really the the upper tactical echelon of large scale combat was as a G three of the twenty fifth, and it was during a during a time where um, I think the threat of war on the Korean Peninsula was extremely high, and and that's what I spent my time as the G three of the twenty fifth doing, thinking about that and planning that, and. You know, I think in the 18 months, I did seven division-level CPXs, warfighter-type exercises, both on the peninsula and in Oahu, um, and then then I became the brigade commander of the First Brigade of the 82nd. And within six months, I was here at JRTC. And my experience as a as a RTU at, at JRTC was amazing, right? It was a, it was it was the best training event that I did as a brigade commander. But I walked away realizing that our army was training the division and the brigade for large-scale combat in two different ways. And not that one was, one was at a dirt CTC and one was in a you know, simulated, constructive environment, but rather we hadn't synced how a brigade fought under a division. And so when I found out I was gonna be the COG, that's what I started thinking about, is how do I create an environment at JRTC? where a brigade commander and battalion commander start to understand what it's like to fight as part of a division unit of action. You know, brigades in the division unit of action don't get Apaches. They might feel the, the effects that the shaping of the Apaches have done forward of them, but those Apaches are they're, they're half of the division's ability to shape the deep fight. Right. The brigade combat team is designed for close combat. It's designed for the close fight. And so what I was trying to do was, I think, a couple things. The first was help brigades and battalions understand why they have to do the math, the science of war, because that's how you balance assets, right? If you come to me as a brigade commander, and I'm the the O, or back when I was the G3, and you say, well, I think I need more people. I, I, I think I need more... Artillery. I think I need the Apaches for this fight. The first question I'm gonna ask you is, well, show me why your COFIMs are different than the division's COFIMs that we designed this plan under and why the division was wrong. Like, show me the math, right? right? How did we miss the correlation of forces? Um, And so I wanted to create that environment so they understood that the math matters in large-scale combat. Um, The second was we had to create an environment you know, if you think about, as a, as a company commander maneuvering through the box every month, you talk to your fellow company commanders constantly, right? Where are you? Where are you on the battlefield? Where are you in relation to the plan? We brought um, brigade commanders to the combat training centers, and they didn't have that. They had no peers to coordinate with. They had no peers to understand how that brigade fit in relation to everything else that was happening in the division. And so I wanted to create a, a better rap with not just a captain or a major from ops group pretending to be a brigade commander, but somebody who had the experience at the 06th level to actually interact. So we brought the constructive fight closer to the Fullerton box. We changed the geometries so that brigades in the box and the, and the brigade in the constructive fight could mutually support one another. We m- created the opportunity for brigades back at home station to actually be in their CP running one of those RAP brigades, and, and now there's real brigade commanders talking. Colonel Hardman, when he was 3 uh, 10th Mountain, was the first brigade commander to do the constructive RAP with his brigade staff. And immediately we saw this massive benefit. The third thing was at the CTCs, we tended to say, okay, here's your attack order. You're gonna do this for three days. And then towards the end of that, we said, here's your defense order. Um, here's your moment to contact order. Here's your pursuit order. As a Division G3, I, I lived in a world where we told the brigade, you know, here's your march objective, and it needs to be accomplished in 10 days. We might issue some intermediate objectives. Right. But largely, the division was focused on shaping the enemy forward of the CFL, and we were just relying on brigades to accomplish what we'd asked them to do. And so I wanted to create an environment where the brigade and the battalions were not only getting their orders and changing their plan based on higher headquarters, but also based on the environment around them. We need we need battalion commanders and brigade commanders who understand the operational environment, can see how it's changing, can see how it's affecting their organization, and can say, hey, boss, I, I need to transition to the defense right now because I've got I've to replenish my stocks. I've got to prepare for the attack that's coming ahead of me. Or... I, I've got to rapidly transition to the pursuit because we're at a point on the battlefield where if I can if I can keep the momentum if I can keep the tempo up in a pursuit we will have decisive effects on the enemy and so that was the third thing we did is we pulled back the orders process we created nightly cubs and and started feeding information to, to help leaders better understand the operational environment
2: and that's something we see rotation to rotation is I think brigades are just this is my 17th rotation just finished up and in those rotations I've seen brigades getting significantly better at understanding those conditions before they transition those big transition points and I think before it was very hard set in stone when those transitions were going to be and now commanders and subordinate commanders are actually able to have that conversation with higher headquarters and say like hey these conditions are not set they're not met, and we're not ready to transition. Whether it's classes of supply, the enemy has a vote, whichever one it may be. I think brigades are really starting to figure that out now.
1: Yeah, and you know, it, it's it's incredibly easy at the at the combat training centers to to decide the transition to the defense because you've culminated. Right. The problem is if you've culminated, you're probably not going to stand up a good defense. And so, can we get our leaders to anticipate culmination? You know, can we get them to? not think about in the hours leading up to the defense, the brigade should no longer be thinking about the defense. The brigade should be thinking about how do we resupply and how do we move combat power forward so that the minute we break this attack, we can be on the attack. How can we rapidly transition to the offense again? Um, And I think we're getting better at it, but it was creating an environment that drove that thought process, right? And got commanders
2: thinking about those transitions so with with those transitions you brought up a lot of good points are about well what we've seen in the ukraine is overextension. understanding when we're cu- culminating when we need to transition how have you seen whether it be your time as the cog brigade commander or coming back now how are you seeing brigades battalions really adapt to those conditions in Lisco, so that non-linear non-contiguous issue outrunning sustainment protecting protecting your fires understanding survivability and sustaining the force for an extended period of time
1: so you know i think we're getting better at understanding when and where we execute what decision-making model Right, And so if you, you know, if you go into, I think, 6.0 and you look at how we make decisions in the Army, it's going to show you this weird, like, inverted arrow. And, and the center, the, the, you know, the shaft of that arrowhead uh, is going to be the plan. And there's this inflection point where information comes in, and, and the Army will define it as threats and opportunities. But at that inflection point, you have to do one of three things. And I, oh, I, I would argue you do one of four things. Three of them are time-based and the fourth is relevancy and so the information comes in and and you do either a two-minute drill or a seven-minute drill but what you're doing is 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 you're moving throughout the staff and you're and they're looking at their running estimates and they're saying this information is relevant to the COA because x now number four what i would argue the fourth thing you do is you throw it away the information is not relevant to the COA. We, we can't be in the business of battle tracking. We've gotta be in the business of fighting our formations. And so maybe the first thing you do is determine, hey, that was really neat information, but discard it. It's not gonna change the COA, Mo- keep moving. The other three are time-based. If it's gonna change the COA, and you only have a little bit of time, you make an executive decision. If it's going to change the COA and you have a little bit of time, then you do RDSP, right, the Rapid Decision Synchronization Process, which is really an executive decision that the staff resyncs, right? You make a decision, and then the staff grabs it, and the staff says, okay, well, we got to adjust the fires a little bit. We're going to have to change the resupply a little bit. We're going to have to change the, right, we're going to resync this plan. The third thing or the fourth thing you do is you say, I have sufficient time. And so I'm going to use the Army's decision-making process. I'm going to put this, right? I'm going to reframe the problem through the military decision-making process, right? And that's, that's the essence of decision-making in large-scale combat is, is those four things. And, and it's all about understanding, you know, you use this word, and this is, this is so critically important, conditions, I think what we're learning and and what we have to get better at is not using the word conditions, but defining what those conditions are. I mean, how many times have you sat in an order, have you sat in a rehearsal, and, you know, Commander A says, hey, sir, when the conditions are set, we're going to move forward. And Commander B says, awesome. But for our people, the executors, we failed to define what those are. What are the conditions? Is the battle captain sitting in the brigade talk? Are they actually prepared to launch an air assault? I don't think that's a brigade commander's, I don't think a brigade commander has to make an active decision. I think a brigade commander can say, if these five conditions are met, then we have set the trigger to launch the air assault. I think a battle captain can do that, but that battle captain needs to be armed with what are those conditions. Um, and so I think it's understanding conditions. And, and, and when you create that understanding, you know, what I like to say is it's all about the transition, right? And, and when you talk transitions, it's, well, who owns the transition? Is it the brigade commander? Or, or does the brigade commander expect a company commander to meet the conditions and move forward with that trigger, right? Who owns the transition? Who's going to make the transition happen, right? Who's going to action the transition? And so in the most common transition that we do in the infantry, in combat arms, right, is the saucer drill. So who owns it? Who's the decision maker to say fire the suppression, fire the obscuration, right? Who's doing each of those? Who's responsible for each of those? Alpha Batter is firing the suppression. Bravo Batter is firing the obscuration, right? And then who's going who's to action that? Right, the A at the end of SOCER. Who's assaulting through, and who is the decision maker to say, yes, we have reduced the lane assault. And if you don't have that discussion, you can end up in a world where everybody's waiting on somebody to make a decision who doesn't know that they're the person who's the decision maker.
2: So something that I've seen through several rotations, something we try Our best, just again, through virtue of getting a lot of repetitions at Combined Arms, is almost thinking of conditions in line with a pace plan, kind of like you were talking about, sir, like understanding how are we actually defining those conditions, who's doing it. But at the end of the day, if you are X company waiting to conduct X task, if that condition isn't met, then what? Do I just stay here? Do I leave? What What's my next step? So just like you said, sir, those conditions actually being defined for the guys on the ground, it has to be something actionable for that company commander, that platoon leader, to actually understand, hey, this condition wasn't exactly met, but looking at this pace plan for this condition, what should my next step be? And it's, again, in my mind, all about being able to empower those subordinate leaders to actually be able to make decisions that can affect an outcome on the battlefield.
1: I, I, I think that's an amazing um, way to look at it. You know, I, I'd offer you two things that we we got to get better at, and we've got to get better at educating, and we've got to get better as, as commanders at delivering. Um, the first is commander's intent. So generally commander's intent is three things. It's a restated purpose. Well. That's not hard. I get that from my boss, right? The second are key tasks, and a lot there's a lot of ways to look at those. Um, the way I look at them, and I really learned this as the cog. I was I was given a pitch on desired end state, which I'll get to in a minute. And when I finished, um, General Scott Jackson, who was the commander of the SVAC at the time, said, "That makes sense, Andy, but let me tell you how I view key tasks." Um, and I listened to him, and I thought, but that's 100% accurate. And he said, I, I view them as how I mitigate risk. I put these key tasks in here because as we define this, this plan, those things that I listed as key tasks, they're, they're, they're the things that must happen to reduce the risk of the operation, to reduce the risk to mission accomplishment. Don't, don't get confused when I talk risk. I am not talking slips, trips, and falls. I'm talking about mission accomplishment. Um, and I, th- I, I think that's a really good way to look at it. But then, but then there's this final piece of desired end state. And, and quite frankly, I don't think we write them very well. You know, who is a brigade commander writing their desired end state for? Their commander's intent. I think they're writing it to the echelon they war game to. And that's the company battery, and troop level. The battalion, you're writing it down to the platoon level. Like, that's your audience. That's who you're speaking to. And so desired end state with respect to terrain, with respect to enemy, with respect to friendly, with respect to civil considerations. If, if a company battered a troop commander can't pick up the brigade commander's desired end state and know when everything goes wrong, what they have to do to accomplish the mission, then they're not ran well. You know, the, the easiest example of this is, is desire to end state with regards to civilians. It typically says something like reestablish the territorial integrity of Arnland and ensure that, you know, the Arnish uh, people are in self-governance. A like company commander ain't going to do that. Right. But 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 what can a company commander do? Well, they can they can ensure that... Um, we reduce all unnecessary collateral damage. They can, they can work really hard to ensure that displaced persons, which is going to be a massive problem wherever we fight the next, the next war, um, they can make sure that they do not impact or interfere with the combat operations of the brigade. Like the, we have to write tangible things so that when everything goes wrong, our commanders can take that, that intent and they can action it. Um, the next piece is, is in CCIR. And I would argue in CCIR we spend a, a decent amount of time on PIR. I don't think we get it right. And, you know, quickly, you know, what I, what I offer to commanders is read your CCIR and say if I find that out, what am I going to do about it? If I find that out, is that going to change the COA? I would say generally when you read our PIR, the answer is no and no. And so it's not good PIR then. But I don't think we spend any time on friendly force information requirements. What what does that really mean? Typically it's like, you know, the loss of a gun, the loss of a tank, the loss of a platoon. What are you going to do? We have to do better at writing those because if we write those correctly and we write them specific to the operation and the balance of risk, because that's what we do as commanders, right, is we manage risk. If we write them with that respect, then we create this common understanding, a common operating picture of what friendly forces need to be able to do and the information that's necessary for that. And that FFIR ought to be just as relevant to the brigade commander as it is to the pathfinder company commander. When they find out that FFIR-1 has been met, and that means that the company that was going to execute the right flag operation for them is no longer combat effective. And so now they have to pick up that task, right, in, in, in one of a myriad of ways. But but I think we have to write these these critically important parts of our orders process to help achieve that understanding at the lower level. If I, I think, largely, um, we didn't do very good planning during um, the past 20 years of, of counterinsurgency operations. Uh, we didn't do detailed planning, right? And, um, and what that resulted in was us exercising control at the action level. Hey, tell me when you take a right turn. Tell me every person you talk to. Tell me when you enter the village. Tell me when you leave the village. Report when you're in mile marker two. That was OK. And it's really because our battalions our brigades, our divisions—they weren't really fighting. We, we were in a world where you know we were in squad, the platoon engagements most of the time, and, and, and so we had the capacity at a higher level to to control at the at the action end. That will overwhelm us in large scale combat, and so we've got to apply the controls and planning. And if we apply the controls correctly, if I give you your airspace, your boundaries. What is permissive? What is restrictive? I define the end state clearly for the 03 level. Well, then you have have freedom of action now. Now you can truly execute mission command because the control has been placed in the planning level. We've rehearsed those controls and now you have freedom of action because you understand what the football field looks like. You understand the rules of the game. Where's the end zone? What are the sidelines? That's the goal here, right? And um, and I think that's what this idea of setting conditions is about and and you're, the way you articulate that with a pace plan, I, I think it's right on, right? Hey, here's you know, it's kind of like a five point contingency plan. Right. The five point contingency plan isn't effective if it's the IOBC version or the Ibolic version, right? Which is, hey, if I'm not back in five minutes, wait another five. And if I don't come back in that five, I just want you to wait ten more minutes. Right. And if I'm not back in twenty, then give me another five. Right? That's that's not a good five-point contingency plan, so we can do better.
2: Yes, sir. So with you brought up you know the, the control, letting subordinate commanders execute disciplined initiative, do the mission command thing, do you think or are you concerned at all with a somewhat elevated reliance on technology, whether it be our new ATACs or any other type of technology that we have that Higher echelon commanders may be starting to get into the weeds of subordinate commanders when they see that little icon right there, that phase line X, and they haven't executed the condition-based trigger for whatever the next step was. Do you think that could be a problem?
1: Um, you know, so I left company command in Korea in 2004, um, and I joined the Ranger Regiment and, and immediately flew to uh, Bagram Air Base and. And one of the first days I was there, I was in the, the, the Ranger Regiments Joint Operations Center at Bagram, um, and I watched uh, a senior regimental leader um, talking in the microphone as there was a Ranger platoon on target, uh, giving guidance to a single Ranger, saying, nope, make a right. No, nope, the guy's behind the bush to your right. Make another right. And of course, it wasn't going to Ranger, right? It was going it was going to a Ranger company commander down, there, no Ranger platoon leader down. Um, so... You, you know, this is not a new conversation, right? Um, Erwin Rommel had radios put on all his tanks, and it, it wasn't so he could hang out behind the flot and direct the actions of his subordinates, right? It's it's so he could yell at his subordinates as his tank was the lead tank crossing the crossing LD. Um, th- there's always this fear that that technology will allow for micromanagement. Right. Um, but what's the, what's the counteroffer there? The counteroffer there is we bring James Gavin back to life. He stands on the drop zone at Fort Liberty and says, yep, that's an airborne assault because we're afraid to change it. The technology enables us and it's all about learning how to use it, right? The, the integrated tactical network and the, the you know, enhanced user device with ATAC software on it, it's not a radio with a smartphone. It is command and control at the leading edge of the battlefield. In an airborne assault before ATAC, I couldn't employ any type of fires inside of the airhead line, right? Because my people were scattered across the drop zone. But now I can see them. And the more entities I can see, the more I can clear fires. Now, the minute we start to stabilize the lines, I wanna I wanna filter that out, right? I don't want to see all of that at echelon. But if we're not understanding how these things can technologically change the way we fight, I mean let's put ourselves inside the rifle platoon. You know, the support by fire, you know, you can leave the the ORP as the weapon squad leader, and I can leave the ORP as as the lead assault squad leader, and I can get to my assault position and you can get to your support by fire position. And you and I can have a three-hour conversation on the radio trying to describe what to you is the front of a tree, which to me is the side of a tree, because that's your left limit, or you can draw it on your ATAC. And I can see it from my reference point. We've got to take this technology, and we've got to master its use to enable command and control. If we get control right, right? Control is how we set the parameters for the fight. Command is how we lead people through it. And, the, and our philosophy of command is mission command. These, these technologies can help us establish the controls in real time to enable mission command. So is it a fear? It is. Absolutely. But, but if we can take those young leaders at the sergeant and lieutenant level and we can start shaping them, how to use this technology for good, right? Um, then, then we'll continue to grow an army that understands how to, make, to maximize the potential of this equipment and not throw it to the wayside because of the fear of micromanagement, right? But embrace it so that we remain the masters of combined arms maneuver. And that's
2: the goal. So the increased technology, implementation of new technology that, that we're using we're seeing used elsewhere in the world is a really good segue into something I'm super interested in hearing your thoughts on, sir, which is survivability of sustainment assets, your key enablers, your fires. Because, again, a, a common myth. Uh, about units coming to JRTC and facing Geronimo is that Geronimo is going to crash in to your infantry battalions? Absolutely not. At all costs, we're trying to bypass the infantry and get to those those assets. So, what are your thoughts on increasing the survivability of all of those assets? Where do you think that's going? Yeah. So you know, I think I think we're we're making strides in the army, but but we got to do
1: more. Um, I think we've got to help the sustainment warfighting function out a lot. You, you know, in some yeah. ways, uh, we we create a false picture of the um, the sustainment warfighting function's ability to self defend when we come to the CTCs because the prepo fleet has ring mounts. Nobody back in a Ford support company. In a, in a brigade support battalion or in uh, you know, a division sustainment brigade, none of those vehicles have weapon systems mounted to them. Um, and so, so, so we've got to help them. We've got to supply them the same mission command equipment. We've got to create the formation that can sustain and protect that sustainment in, in, inherently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got to figure out how to make it smaller you can't make it smaller until we define the consumption rates of our maneuver forces. Now, if, if if we were at the national training center, you know, our mounted forces would rapidly be able to define their class three package and their class three bulk consumption requirements. Um, But I think that's the best we can do in the army right now. Uh, We've got to do better at defining our consumption rates and we've got to, we've got to start understanding how much artillery is needed to provide the effects we want. They're the king of battle for a reason. Um, We've got to understand how much that takes because that's going to drive the consumption rate. As Division G3, my number one risk concern that I articulated to the division commander was the ability to resupply our fire's assets. Um, And so when we collectively start to understand consumption of Class 5, Class 1, Class 3, now now we can start accurately depicting how large our sustainment actually has to be um, and until we do that we're, we're not we're not going to be able to make that formation uh, not necessarily smaller but more effective right we're not going to gain efficiencies um, <clears throat> so that's sustainment specific uh you know our fires i think we've gotta we, we've gotta create um we've got digital capability in our toad systems but it's just not—it's um, not as reliable as it can be. Um, so we've got some connection issues. We've got to improve, and um, and, and, and we've got to we've got to make it more durable. Okay, um, but it's it's good. Largely, I think we got to do two things: is one, we we've got to start to understand how to operate inside of the electromagnetic spectrum, and and this is not a. You know, we got to be careful when every time we, we measure a brigade, it's in central Louisiana or the Mojave Desert. Because, you know, I, I, I was the cock, right? I, I carried both of my phones at all times in the box because depending on where I was, depending on if I had any cell service or if I only had it on AT&T or Verizon, right? <laughs> like, um, and, 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 you know, we all know about the Mojave Desert. So we, we've got to not only say this is what you look like in a barren environment, but, hey, let me show you what you look like in a saturated environment, because then, just like camouflage, right? I'm gonna change the way I, I visually camouflage myself depending on if I'm in a desert, urban, jungle, you know, uh, woodland environment. I ought I to be training leaders to understand how do I look like in a very high cell network? Do I, how do I look like in a barren cell network? How do I look like in in urban environment, how to look like in a rural, envir- rural environment, and, and we, we need to start teaching leaders not just when they spike, but to understand when and how they should use what they have. There's, there's some amazing technologies the Army's working on with regards to smart pace, right? Algorithms that exist inside of all our new, you know, software-defined radio systems that just switch. It knows. What it camouflages best inside of, and so it takes you from TSM onto your onto a Wi-Fi network because it'll camouflage itself better there. Um, so from a smart pace perspective, um, we, we've got to start helping leaders understand where where they live inside that spectrum. Um, but we've also got to do better at the visual form of contact. I mean, almost every form of contact relies on that, and and you know, right? I mean. The, you know, two of the myths of Geronimo is, you know, not that y- your paratroopers aren't good at UAS operations, you need to operations, but you also don't have a hard time figuring out where to look. Right. Right? Um, and y- you rapidly find things through the visual form of contact, Right absolutely i mean it's just a reality and it doesn't matter what conversation we're having we've just got to do better at the visual form of contact you know we've got to reduce a brigade combat team can hide its talk all day long but when it when it's when it's a 40 vehicles to move that talk like it's hard to hide 40 humvees that's a visual form of contact that we've got to we've got to do better at right um and so I think those are the things we have to do to better protect these critical nodes, right? It's not, it's not just about let's make uh, the howitzer smaller, or the howitzer, you know, um, self-propelled. I, I'd take it tomorrow, right? If you could give me a, a wheeled self-propelled 105 that I can throw out the back of an airplane, we'd take it tomorrow, right? But it, it's about understanding there are two environments that we have to master the art of camouflage inside of. And one is visual. It's the one we've been struggling with since, you know, since the first time, uh, you know, a a guy covered himself in mud to hide from the enemy, right? I mean, it's how Schwarzenegger defeated the Predator, right? I mean, they tried to fight him all day long, and finally he took away the Predator's thermal advantage through mud, right? Uh, But the other is this this electromagnetic spectrum. And, And I'm not sure that we're giving commanders the tools they need to understand how to camouflage themselves inside of it. Some of the tools are easy. key the hand my like glass, talk less when you key it. Um, but we also don't want to command and control the army like Grant did, right right So we've gotta, we've got to arm ourselves with the, the tools and the knowledge necessary to understand how to camouflage inside the environment.
2: right And the brigades that are coming through at least you know in the recent last year, Have been doing an extraordinarily better job of exactly that sir. so the dispersion and the camouflaging of cps of fires assets of troops has gotten significantly better a lot of new ttps with base clusters uh, with the bsa making it way harder to find those indicators aren't there for us we're having a hard time finding it and if we do find a cluster we have to make the decision hey are we going to expose our guns to shoot at just a couple of LMTVs, a couple of tents. We don't really know what's there. Are we going to send an entire company out there to look at it and risk the chance of losing that asset? Uh, and then with fires, seeing a lot of different TTPs of moving, jumping constantly, one up, one back, dispersing the guns. A lot of different TTPs we're seeing. Some super effective, but something I've argued for a long time, it, it really just comes down to the discipline. Like you said, sort of the visual contact, yeah. that dispersion and camouflage both physically with our equipment and our personnel, but also with that EW signature. So a lot of advances with our EW team using the phone and the drones, uh, just the commercial off-the-shelf, unclassified systems, free apps off you know iTunes app store, and they're able to pick up Uh, different signals from printers, watches, different machines out on the battlefield, and we're starting to put these IRs together and start answering PIRs. And we're actually targeting a lot of these things with very, very simple technology. And it's all because of that that discipline factor. Are we actually checking our cool Garmin watches that say, Evan's watch can put some things together Wireless keyboards start putting the indicators together, and you're able to target something larger.
1: Yeah, you know, you hit a super, super important point there a minute ago, and so let's talk about risk for a minute. And I think, you know, in our army, um, we use the risk management worksheet, right? The draw uh, for all the right reasons, but but w- without the proper education, it it creates in our leaders this idea that risk is binary, right? I can turn it up and I can turn it down. Here's the risk, it's medium, I implement this control, it's low baby, we're good. And that's not really how risk works. You know, any place that you lower risk, somewhere else it went up. The key is for a commander and their staff to understand that while I lowered the risk to an acceptable level in this cylinder, and it, ri- it rose in this other cylinder because of that, it didn't rise to an unacceptable level, right? And so risk is about gaining this equilibrium across everything you're doing. So now let's go back to camouflage. And it doesn't matter if we're camouflaging in the visual spectrum or the electromagnetic spectrum. What I want to do is I want to raise the risk proposition for the enemy commander. You know, so sometimes I'll go out and I'll see a critical asset, let's say a howitzer, and it doesn't have camouflage on it. And, and I'll say, hey, did you guys bring out camo nets? And they'll say, well, we have green camo nets, and this is a big dirt field where we're shooting. The camo net isn't always about making me not be able to see that anything's there. It might just be about making me decide, is that a howitzer? Is it a water buffalo? Is it an LMTV? What am I going to risk exposing my artillery to? What am I going to risk exposing my force to to shoot that? You know, if I can't tell the difference in the electromagnetic spectrum between a rifle squad's communications and a brigade talk, now I have a risk calculus that's much, much harder to make as an enemy commander. What am I going to shoot my artillery at? What am I going to send a dismounted force to destroy? Am I going to get in a scrap with an infantry battalion or a lightly defended support node. And, and so camouflage isn't always about making it invisible. Sometimes it's about making it all look the same because that adds this risk calculation that the commander has to, the enemy commander, has to decide. And, you know, what you articulated is we're seeing that for real out here. The, the other thing that, you know, um, the aid man sitting over here in the corner is going to laugh when I say this, but the other thing that you said that... Um, Made me think was, you know, it used to be when when, when I was a kid. At when I was in the Reserve Officer Training Corps, um, we were all forced to read in the defense of Duffer's Drift, right? And and when you open the preface of it, it said, you know, this this story has been used um, uh, more extensively than any other, um, you know, story in officer professional military education since it was written, um, and it's not widely read anymore. You know, and so the main character in The Defense of Duffer's Drift, which is about a British lieutenant in the uh, Boer War fictional, um, is told through this series of dreams as he, he, you know, attempts to defend Duffer's Drift and fails. And he learns lessons through his dreams. One of the first lessons he learned is about Spall, right? Is about when we dig a hole, the dirt that comes out of the hole looks different than the dirt that's on the ground. You know, how many times do you guys see Friendly artillery because of where we chose to dug it, dig it in, right? And, and you know, Geronimo drops him. largely lush and green until you dig two inches into it. And then what color is the dirt?
2: Super bright.
1: Super bright orange, right? And so sometimes we just got to go back. We You know, we've got to, I don't want to say get back to the basics because it's kind of cliche, but, you know, this, this simple story about, you know, a lieutenant in the Boer War, it's it's still very relevant to to fighting correctly in the visual spectrum
2: and i would offer the electromagnetic spectrum and i think that dichotomy of risk that you brought up sir of hey if we're we're assuming risk in one area we're lowering it somewhere else i think those are the ttps that platoons company battery troops are figuring out now just an example with fires like hey i'm gonna to prevent being counterfired, I'm going to separate my guns within my battery, and I'm going to have them 250 meters apart, and they can't get all my guns at once. They're likely not even to shoot counter-battery at just one gun. Now I'm having the issue of, hey, how am I actually securing these guns? How am I massing fires? How am I coordinating onto an objective? How am I maneuvering or moving ammunition to these different guns? So is, was that trade-off worth it? when geronimo or the enemy shows up and is able to just piece by piece run through my entire battery so i think those are the lessons that we're learning at jrtc that is just super valuable to the force
1: that's right and it's not you know i i think most of the time it's not was this technique valuable but it's when is this technique valuable right we're we're about to conduct the final attack on Shugar Gordon, four brigades synchronized in time and space, massing, or four battalions synchronized in time and space to mass the brigade's combat power. Probably want a simpler, simpler problem for the artillery uh, uh, shooters, right? right. Um, but it's, these, these techniques are not, well, this is the technique and we're gonna use it and that's all we're gonna use. It's, it's what's the threat What's the problem that I'm trying to solve? And, and how do I use this book of techniques, um, you know, to understand in time and space where I am on the battlefield? And, and again, understand the operational environment. What is it that we're going to deliver? you know,
2: Because there's a risk, risk calculus to it. And that's how we have to think as commanders. Right. So with operational environment, sir, you know, your experience as the COG, Brigade Commander, and then coming back now as All-American 7, are there any surprises within JRTC and the operational environment that is the box? Yeah. Um, you,
1: you, you talked to me about this question before we started, and I thought, i got to think about that, and I didn't think about it. Um, you know, before I became the COG, um, I looked and I said, Man, we've had these, you know, I don't remember what it was, 10 trends, and they haven't changed in 10 years. Like, are we, are, <laughs> is JRTC and NTC doing anything? Are, you, are they having any success? Like, if these trends are still there, what I realized is the cog was they have fundamentally changed. The trend is, it's, it's a key task for the Army, it's a key task for our brigade combat teams. But what has changed is where we've moved on this spectrum, right? So employing fires. Like we have gotten so much better at leading with HE. We're not as good as we want to be because that's what makes the American Army so successful, right? We just want to be better tomorrow than we are today. It's about continually improving. And so we're not where we want to be. I'm not sure we'll ever be, but we're better. We're better every rotation, and every time you and every time uh, you know ops group, and every time brigades share the lessons we're learning here, our army gets better. And so, what about the operational environment um, surprises me? Um, I think it's a it's its ability to continue to challenge. I've seen us get better. Our defenses. You know, if I think back to a, myself as a battalion commander at the National Training Center in uh, 2016, uh, to you know, looking at the what the Falcons did, you know, a week ago here in the Fullerton Box. I mean, we're so much better. But the the combat training centers, and you know, Geronimo and Blackhorse, their ability to continue to challenge that fight and, and make us better as an army. I think that's what continues to surprise me. And, and you know, I do, look, right, the, you know, the 82nd Airborne Division right now has two former cogs inside of it, and I think there's a little bit of cockiness that we're like, well, you know, our brigade's going to go down the JRTC and they're just going to crush it, right? They've got both of us talking to them constantly. And, um, and they come down here and they're challenged because that's the goal. This is a crucible experience. This is not about us, you know, high fiving on the five yard line afterwards. It's about us getting punched in the face, so that fourteen days at JRTC are tougher than the force 14, day, fourteen days of ground combat. That's the goal, and I think I think the ability to do that, you know, I just look at the growth. You I know, mean, I left here, I don't know, almost two years ago, eighteen months ago. Um, as the cog and, and the advances Geronimo has made in, um, you know, electromagnetic and signal collection is, is leaps and bounds, is just leaps and bounds. Um, and it's making our army better, like you've articulated a number of times. And so I think that's the thing that, it doesn't matter that I knew that. It doesn't matter um, how many times I see it. It continues to surprise me um, how good we are at just punching ourselves in the face, and then teaching us how to take that punch or avoid
2: Right, and at the end of the day, too, sir, some things are hard. They've always been hard, and they will continue to be hard. And it's a matter of: are we learning from our mistakes? Are we getting better, even if it is still a very difficult task to begin with? Yeah, you know, my
1: predecessors, the guy used to say, you know, what we ask you to do here is quite simple. It's just synchronize the seven warfighting functions in time and space. Um, it's really hard, right? And sometimes it's important to remind us that, like what we do is hard. Um, and our goal is to just be better. we We, we got to be better tomorrow. We've got to continue to strive to master what it is we do. We've got to enforce discipline, right? You know, um, Throughout the Revolutionary War, you know, Washington, um, we know everything he wrote to the Continental Army, right? He, he kept extensive notes and, and everything was copied that was sent back and forth. And, and, and one of the first things we know he said to the Army before he even arrives in Boston is discipline is the soul of the Army. It makes small numbers formidable, procures procure success for the weak and esteem for all. Um, these are the things, you know, master our basic fundamentals master our common tasks enforce the discipline to write how many how many times if have, have you rolled up the rotational unit because we just weren't pulling security not because you were the master of combined arms maneuver of pathfinder company but because you just you just found a unit that wasn't pulling security this is the discipline i'm talking about right you know when we stop you know i i like to say we exist in two Two forms at all times as a, as a, as a maneuver force we're attacking or defending. And if there is no forward progression to what you're doing, you have started engagement area development. Right? The minute I decide that eh, I've paused walking long enough to take a knee, I ought to start thinking about the steps of VA dev. If two seconds later I, I start walking again, my time wasn't wasted. I started to prepare to defend against you. That's the discipline. Uh, that we're talking about right because that's what keeps you at bay you know do you do you mess with a unit that has rns patrols absolutely not right because that is a unit that is ready to face
2: you yeah i think the what <laughs> the colleague always asks me who who do you hate fighting and it's the ones who have RNS patrols, it's the ones who are dug in and actually have fighting positions because that is not an easy task because uh, it's no secret Geronimo likes to use BMPs. We like to use the roads because we can get somewhere quickly. We can mass very quickly on an objective. If you are in the wood line, dug in, in defensible terrain, and have employed obstacles and have integrated indirect fire into those obstacles, it is very likely that we are not going to come looking for you because no. we're going to... Attempt to bypass, if we can, if you have those interlocking sectors, there are times where Geronimo loses, and and recently it's been happening more and more frequently.
1: Yeah. Okay, here's the biggest thing that surprises me. You just reminded me of this, right? And every time it surprises me. It blows my mind why light infantry forces refuse to defend against light infantry. Like, how many times have you approached... A rotational unit, and they've got this great defense along the road, and there's nothing on the flanks. There's n- there's no there's no rifle squad protecting the flanks. There's no obstacles protecting the flanks, and all you have to do is step five feet into the wood line, and you can roll up the entire. Right, um, there's the biggest surprise at, at the Joint Readiness Training Center is just as light infantrymen, we forget that we are light infantrymen, right? Uh, and we 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 don't attack against them, and we don't defend against them. We we, we boy we love roads
2: we love them we get very target fixated on the big loud shining object yeah, that that's right. is rolling down the road uh but i think and we're guilty of it also we tend to forget uh that the infantry can move through restricted terrain very easily not easily but they can uh and i know we were we were a victim of that my company was this rotation we had a super awesome defense in depth with obstacles and fires integra- integrated. It was it was great. Uh, problem was we were super focused on the Abrams and the Bradleys that were showing their hand in the south. And so, hey, we're ready for these guys. And 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in my position, and I see about a fire team uh, size element just run right in front of my vehicle across, <laughs> across the road. And I was about midway through my super awesome defense in depth yeah I was like, oh, here we go so now that awesome defense is not helpful anymore because we're not defending against an armor threat there's an infantry company 20 meters to my left so another example infantry has a vote and they can move and surprise even the best defense
1: yeah and you know you, 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 you then pull that back to your first question right to to what is the relevance of airborne and parachute infantry I mean listen y- y- you know, one one of our greatest thinkers was one of our first thinkers, right? And and Benjamin Franklin, you know, wrote, you know, what prince can defend against an enemy to his rear? Um, you know, the ability of, of our army to conduct vertical envelopment at scale, and then deploy that vertical envelopment in a way that challenges the enemy the way you just articulated it. Um, that's a real strength, and it's you know, it's what we bring. Um, with airborne and and our air assault forces
2: so the really the last question I have for you sir is what advice just acknowledging your experience at JRTC especially what piece of advice would you give to a company grade officer or NCO prior to their first or second third fourth JRTC rotation man how long we got (laughs) as long as you need sir
1: Okay, I'm going to try and stick to four. <laughs> um, the first gets to this discipline piece, right? Um, I, I, I'm confident, you know, I, I went to ranger school in uh, 1998. I am confident that the, throughout my career, I had just continually implemented the priorities of work that I learned in ranger school. Every unit I, I, I led would have been better off priorities a work um, is so essential. It's so essential what we do, and it you shouldn't reinvent the wheel. I think you can have standing priorities of work. Does it mean that, that you don't remove one in the circumstance or you don't add one? In, no, but it means if I don't say anything, like we just know this is what we do. This is critically important. When you think about Preparing to defend, establishing security, putting our weapons in a condition that they're ready to fight. You know, we, we all operate off of optics and lasers now, and, and we don't really read boresight those things ever. You know, and they get banged around. So so the first is establish standing priorities of work. Rehearse them. I lied. I just saw the fifth one I'm going to add to you. Um, um Sorry, just writing. Uh, so, so that that's the first is priorities of work. They are critically important, and 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 I think they can be standing, and I think you should implement them at all times. If you go if you go to the qual range, make your formation live out of patrol base, execute priorities of work. Right, um, this has got to become second nature. You got to do the math. W- There's a number of things that over the time. I had as the cog, I, I thought, boy, I, I, that's not how I thought of this problem before, and, and I was wrong. Um, and one of those is the U.S. Army's ability to defend. And becoming the cog, I would have said, the U.S. Army is horrible at the defense. I don't think we are. I think we build decent defenses. The problem is we don't do the math. So... All of our anti-tank weapon systems have a minimum arming range, and we generally set our defenses up inside of that minimum arming range. We generally set our defenses up so our forward observers and our anti-tank gunners have these keyhole shots, right? We, We know that the average processing time throughout the rotation has been five minutes, yet we put our observer... 15 seconds away from where the enemy's going to hit the, we've got to do the math. You got to do the math. You can't have a ranger school ambush. You remember that ambush you did in ranger school that like the barrel of your M4 was on the road? Like that's, that doesn't work, right? right? You've got to do the math. You've got to understand the capability of your weapon systems. You've got to understand the law of averages and you've got to set the conditions to maximize that. If I think the enemy is going to travel at 25 kilometers an hour and I want to kill them here, then I've got to do the math to understand at 25 miles an hour and the average processing time of the indirect fire system is going to shoot for me. This is how far out. I need an observer so I can call. And I probably need two observers, right? I've got to call. i have got one observer at a technical trigger to launch that fire mission, and I probably need another observer at the tactical trigger to can adjust that fire mission. But if we're not doing the math, then we'll continue to hit enemy armor with duds. And we'll continue to call fire missions on 20 minutes after the enemy's gone. So you got to do the math, and you have to know the math. If every one of your leaders isn't carrying a smart card that has the math of our weapon systems on it, then we're not ready to do our job. Why? This gets to your, I'm at Ian Pace, and what do I do? The why is so important. I watched one of the most phenomenal support-by-fires I've seen in 27 years of service the other night. I mean, it, it held a sustained to cyclic rate of fire for 45 minutes wow. on Sugar Gordon. Problem is, I don't know what it was doing there. <laughs> that leader, that leader knew they had to establish support by fire. They knew they had to provide mm-hmm. an excellent base of suppressive fires to enable maneuver. They knew where it had to go. What they didn't know was why. And so it went in way before it was needed. And it went in before the condition was set, and probably because we didn't know what the condition was. Right? right? And so you got to talk through the why. You go back to Valley Forge, right? You go to Von Steuben training our Army, and the first thing he notices is that the, the Continental Soldier, right? The Continental Soldier has an incessant need to know why. This is who we are. This is part of our DNA. The why with control measures enables me to execute mission command. Uh, so we got we to gotta explain that. Um, number four, rehearse. Rehearse. Rehearse with your leaders so they understand the synchronization of the fight. You know, sit with your platoon leaders and rehearse that. When when you're in the back of the trucks, you're in the ORP, you're in the patrol base, and you're just waiting, spread your platoon leaders out, get on the radio, and do the key calls of the fight. Rehearse it. Set out priorities of rehearsal. There are things that we just know we will do. Put them in your priority rehearsals so that your non-commissioned officers Your platoon leaders, they just know. When I have time, I start at rehearsal A and I start working my way down. Units that rehearse are better units. Units that rehearse understand how to act and react to contact. Um, And the final thing is, look, we have just got to get better. And I think you saw some successes in this rotation. You just talked about one, but we have got to get better at overland movement and the art of patrolling. The art of tactical movement over land, through dense terrain, to arrive at a, at a place of our choosing undetected. We've just got to get better at it. There are far more tools available to us today to do that, um, but the techniques haven't changed. And, and I don't think we do it enough, right? I would have a goal that my company will conduct X number of hours or miles of patrolling a week. We will, you know, hey, it's great that every Thursday we do a foot march. But X number of times a month, X number of times a quarter, that foot march will be over land. It will be through restrictive terrain um, because it's not enough just to be able to carry a rock under load. It's about carrying it over complex terrain. That's what we're building. A, that's what we're conditioning ourselves for. That's functional fitness for for a light infantry force, right? right? And all of those enabler units that come with us, right? Because you know a light infantry force is not is is not a bunch of eleven bravos. It's everybody that you know exited an aircraft fifteen days ago into the Fullerton box, right? And it doesn't matter if you're a cook, and it doesn't matter if you're a medic, and it doesn't matter if you're a mechanic. You're part of a light infantry force, and we're going to need you to move overland. To accomplish your mission and so that's it Prioritize work do the math explain the why so your leaders have an understanding rehearse 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 and uh, we 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 just got to do more patrolling and overland movement you know shoot marksmanship today on the range but conduct an overland movement to the next range tomorrow shoot marksmanship today on the range spend five hours tonight patrolling before you shoot tomorrow we got to get better at it.
2: And I think a lot of what you just described, sir, is again in its essence is discipline. Yeah. Being disciplined to actually conduct your priorities of work and not just skip to the last one, which is everyone's favorite the discipline to actually conduct rehearsals. People who've been walking all day, like you said, sir, walk 15 kilometers under load, arrive at an objective, start doing EA dev. Pounding pickets, stretching wire, digging, the last thing you want to do is get up and actually run through that rehearsal. So it's that discipline to actually do all of those things is the hardest part of being a soldier, at least in my experience here.
1: Yeah, the soul of an army. (laughs) Make small monitors formidable, procure success for the weak, and esteem for all.
2: Absolutely, sir. So shameless plug for Geronimo is you get to come down, be Geronimo, Talk to Colonel Sazlav and learn all the lessons you need to know to be successful at JRTC. So, sir, thank you. Let let me
1: give you a better shameless plug for Geronimo (laughs) and for Ops Group, right? And that is, listen, we we exist to fight and win our nation's wars. There are two places in the United States Army that you do that every month, that you you will learn to master your craft. You will get a master's or a Ph.D. in the art of war, and it's at the two combat training centers right? Um, You know, Geronimo company commander, they maneuver their company better because they maneuver their company more and they see it. Uh, And so come down here and and master your profession, right? And that's what you're learning to do right now. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Yes, sir. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for joining us on The Crucible, the JRTC experience.
0: The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash L-I-N-K-T-R We'd like to thank our partners at the Center for Army Lessons Learned of the Combined Arms Center, especially the JRTC Call Observations Detachment. Be sure to follow them on social media as well. Follow them at HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.army.mil.com forward slash c-a-l-l don't forget to like subscribe and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts and be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future the crucible the j-r-t-c experience is a product of the joint readiness training center